What a transformation had come upon Joseph. He had been his father's favourite. It had the coat of many colours. It stirred up the jealousy of his brothers, so much so they determined to do away with him. They threw him into a pit. They were going to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery, into Egypt. And then we know the story. He went there and uh, there in Potiphar's house, he was doing so well until Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. And then he's in prison. And in prison he meets the baker and the butler and interprets their dreams and those dreams come true. But he's still there in prison and in prison for some years. And then Pharaoh has this dream. He has this dream and it's so real to him. So concerned that these things were true but no one could tell him what it meant. Then suddenly one of those who was in prison with Joseph said, ah, I know a man who can interpret dreams. And so Joseph is brought out and the dreams of Pharaoh are interpreted and Joseph is made a leader of the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh's dreams were coming true. Exactly as God enabled Joseph to interpret them. There had been the seven years of plenty as had been prophesied and during that great time there had been enormous harvests And so Joseph built storehouses in every town and city and there he put aside every opportunity, a good quantity of grain year after year. And at the end of those seven years, of course, there comes the second part of Pharaoh's dream, the seven years of famine. And the reality began to affect the people of Egypt. In fact, not just there, it affected every part of the known world. And the people were hungry But not in Egypt, for God had provided through Joseph that their storehouses were full. And so Joseph supplies the people with food and all the surrounding countries come to Egypt to buy food from Joseph. Now Joseph was in charge of everything. He had position, he had wealth, he had family, but he never forgot his God. He never forgot his background. He never forgot those dreams he had had all those years ago. Now here in this 42nd chapter of Genesis, we are taken away from that scene of being in Egypt and we're taken back to Joseph's family in Canaan. Jacob's still alive, still the head of the extended family. Now there were 11 sons at home, the youngest being Benjamin, Born the, the one Jacob had loved, Rachel, who had died giving birth to Benjamin. But Jacob never stopped grieving over Joseph. And he thought he was dead. Do you remember they came back, the brothers came back, they brought back his cloak covered with blood, and they said, oh, he must have been killed by an animal. And surely every day these ten brothers were reminded of their dark secret as their father grieves the loss of his favourite son, these brothers surely could never completely put it out of their mind. Of course, we know the end of the story. Later on, the story reaches a climax, doesn't it? When Joseph reveals to his brother who he is, and the main reason for all that had happened is made clear. We'll come to this on another occasion, God willing. But in Genesis 45 and verse 7, we read this. 
God sent me, that's Joseph, before you to preserve a prosperity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Throughout the lands of the Near East, people were travelling to Egypt for relief from famine. They would buy food from Joseph. It was surely making the nation of Egypt even richer than it was. But there was famine in Canaan. Now, does that come as a surprise to us, to hear that this, the promised land of God, had a famine? But yet when we look back through scripture, we find that Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob had all felt the effects of famine in Canaan. And we often think and find Canaan described in terms of the Garden of Eden. But of course, we need to remember that Canaan was not a perfect place. It was a type of the paradise of God. And the famines taught the people to look beyond Canaan and to look to a better country. We have that recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 11. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. But we also need to see here that God's kingdom on earth is to be seen in the church. This church, every true gospel church, is to be seen as a type of paradise of God. It's where we come aside, where we come away from the busy world and all its confusion and all its sin and wretchedness. And we come together uh, to be the people of God. And that's both universally, but particularly we see this locally. But we also see it being far from perfect because it's made up of people like you and especially me. We are sinners saved by grace, but we still have the mark of sin upon us. And it also always reminds us that we, like the people of God of old, look forward to a better place. The eternal heaven of Christ, wherein perfection and righteousness reign, and all pain and sorrow are banished forever. But for now, Jacob and his family faced this famine. And what they did not know was that this would be the very means of bringing the family back together, Joseph reunited with them, and would be a preparation for the great Exodus event that would be happening some 400 years hence. Now, Jacob was still very much the head of the family. We read in verse 1 of chapter 42, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Jacob tells them what to do. He takes the initiative. Was it that the brothers were afraid of going to Egypt? We could understand that. After all, that was where they'd sent Joseph. But they had no choice. They must go to Egypt to buy food or the whole family would perish. And so the ten half-brothers set off on the journey to Egypt. We might ask, well, why did all ten go? Did it need all of them? But no doubt they had large families and they would need plenty of food for them. 
but one was retained, one was not go. That would be Rachel's second son, Benjamin. He was to stay at home. And we read in verse 4 of chapter 42, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. He was Joseph's full brother, the only son left of uh, Jacob's beloved Rachel. And since the apparent loss of Joseph, Jacob loves this lad as he had Joseph. And he would not take the risk of some harm coming to him. He couldn't fully trust the older brothers. Maybe again here there's a barbed reminder to them of their past deeds. And then the scene changes. We now move from Canaan. The brothers have moved to Egypt. They have travelled together. And when they arrive, they're not taken to some civil servant to negotiate the purchase of food. They come before the very governor, the prime minister of Egypt himself. And the brothers made their customary greeting, bowing their faces to the ground. And immediately Joseph recognises them. And at once he sees them and no doubt all the detail of his unfulfilled dream came flooding back into his mind. But the thing was, they didn't recognise him. Maybe not so surprising. Now he's nearly 40 years of age. It was 20 years since they'd last seen him. Not only that, he was dressed as an Egyptian and as a very senior Egyptian as well. And he would be clean-shaven and he was speaking through an interpreter. And Joseph surely would have been the last person they would have expected to see in such a high, exalted position of state. And Joseph decides to treat these brothers harshly. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognised them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Was Joseph trying to take revenge on his brothers? Well, I would suggest not at this stage. For in a little while we see how difficult it is for Joseph to hold back his emotions. Verse 24, he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. But God was using Joseph in this scene and we're coming to the heart of what we want to look at this morning. And that was God was using Joseph to awaken the consciences of these brothers. And as we look at these events, we will see that Joseph's dealings with his brothers are actually a picture of the Lord's gracious dealings with us in saving grace. The brothers were accused of spying. Maybe it's not unusual. Throughout history of Egypt, they have been vulnerable to attack from the northeast. So Joseph would have been on his guard from any possible infiltration from that region. So Joseph can quite realistically use this as a pretense to trap the brothers. And he accuses them of being spies. But God was using Joseph to humble these proud men, to change their hard hearts, and to bring about a full fulfilment of prophecy. If they were to live peaceably together in Egypt, these brothers need to be brought to an end of themselves. They needed to face up to the truth of their past actions. 
They say to Joseph, as recorded in verse 13, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and in fact the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. One is no more. That would hit hard with Joseph as they said that. Maybe the accusing them of being spies would remind them that is what they were used to accuse Joseph of being. Do you remember uh, when Joseph would go out to the fields, they would, he would bring back a report to his father, and they often accused Joseph of spying on them, bringing evil reports of their behaviour to their father all those years ago. And the brothers protest their innocence. Do you see that? We're honest men, we're not spies. These men knew they were in trouble. But they clung to their own righteousness before Joseph, who knew them. They resented the way Joseph spoke to them, and they defended themselves. We are honest men, they say. But isn't this the very nature of the way in which the unbeliever ever seeks to justify himself before God? Those are not Christians. How often they say, ah, but we're honest people. We try to do good. We look after our neighbour. We're kind to other people. Uh, We don't deserve any of this. They never see themselves as their need of forgiveness before a holy God. And they try to justify themselves before the true and living God. And Joseph vigorously rejects their defence and declares he will test them. Verse 14, following, Joseph said to them, He says, I spoke to you, saying, You're spies. In this manner you shall be tested. But the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So put them in prison. He put them in prison for three days. They'd thrown him in a pit. They'd sold him as a slave. And he first intends to just send one back home to fetch the remaining brother, Benjamin. But then he relents and allows nine of the brothers to return, but one is kept as a hostage, Simeon. That was Leah's second son. But the brothers leave Simeon to the mercy of the Egyptians as the way they had left Joseph to the mercy of the Ishmaelites. But something started to happen in that prison. Something had stirred in the minds and the consciences of these men. They were only there for three days, but their consciences began to trouble them. Perhaps this was the first time they began to admit to one another something of their guilt. The shock of being incarcerated in prison for a period would set these brothers on the road to admit their guilt against Joseph. Does not the Lord bring us to situations where we start to see our own sin before a holy God? Is that not the very road that we've all travelled on if we are Christians here this morning? There was a day came when we started to see that our sin, my sin, your sin, was a reality before a holy God. And it's only at that point, only when we start to see just how far short we've fallen of the glory of God, that we start to see our need of forgiveness, our need of salvation. And it's then that we will start to cry out to God, we will never do that. 
If you're not a Christian this morning, you will never cry out to God for forgiveness unless you feel your own sin. These brothers were feeling the guilt. They were beginning to face up to the reality of their guilt. Verse 21, then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. This distress has come upon us. In front of Joseph, they agreed that one should remain behind until they would come back with Benjamin. They say, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. They confessed to one another. They understood that their present predicament was a punishment from God. And Reuben rubbed salt into the wound. He says in verse 22, Did I not speak to you saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. They started to see and understand that their past was catching up with them. What they did not realise was that Joseph could understand everything they said. He, Joseph, had been speaking through an interpreter. And as the brothers leave with Simeon in jail, Joseph had the money they paid for the grain put into their, back into their sacks. The brothers had paid Joseph for the grain they had taken, so at least in part they were successful in what they set out to do. Perhaps that brought a little relief to them for a moment, a relief to their consciences. Here then was a few moments of reprieve. They set out to buy food. Yes, they've had to leave Simeon, but nine of them were intact. They had bags full of grain. They were heading home to Jacob, their father. Perhaps for a moment they were thinking, well, at least we've got a little bit of peace. But then Joseph was still unknown to them. As one of the commentators reminds us, this is what religion gives sinners a few moments of what appears to be relief and peace. There are many, even this morning, maybe attending a church, maybe going along and taking some form of communion or some time in a church service. And they come away for a little while feeling good, a little bit of peace in their mind, perhaps just something for a little while. But it's false because they do not know Christ. It's false because they have not faced up to the reality of their sin. It's false because they do not see that they need the saving blood of Christ to bring them to God. But then there was another lesson that these brothers needed to learn. And that was this. When they'd gone a distance, one of them opened his sack to get the feed for his donkey. And what does he find in the top of that sack is the money that he'd given. Now their hearts sank. What was God doing to them? Their distress was bringing them towards repentance. Now they start to tremble, filled with guilt and fear. They were having a real miserable time of it. They thought for a moment everything was, well, at least reasonable, even if they'd lost Simeon. But now their money had been brought back to them. What did that mean? They started to realise their own sin was the heart of the problem. And you see, one of the things they needed to learn was that forgiveness comes by grace alone they were buying bread as one commentator says the bread of life cannot be purchased it must be accepted as a free gift and God uses these circumstances to awaken the consciences of people dead in sin a guilty conscience 
can lead to a great torment in our minds and souls. And you know, that applies to believers who have not owned up to their past sins. We tend to think of this only in terms of the unbeliever. But it is the fact that even Christians sin. We think of David, and we'll make a mention of him in a moment. But the very feeling of guilt that drives us to our need of a saviour, that's where we came in salvation. As Christians, we find our need daily to come before our saviour and to come in repentance and faith, bringing us to a true repentance of spirit, asking the Lord to forgive us. If you're an unbeliever this morning, are you challenged? Do you know the guilt of your sin? Do you know in your heart that all is not right? Well, thank God that you feel like that, for you're on the road to forgiveness. But don't stop there. Take that guilt to Christ. And believer, do you have unconfessed sin? Are you like David? After all the situation with Bathsheba, he continued to live as if nothing had happened until he was challenged and guilt drove him to repentance. And we have those words at the beginning of Psalm 51, against you, you only, have I sinned and done evil in your sight. And that's the story of each one of us. We do sin before God and we do need to bring that before God and we've got the glorious promise of forgiveness but we need to bring it before him. Those nine brothers had a miserable journey home now and it would get worse for them until they came in full repentance. And now the scene changes again. We started in Canaan, we went to Egypt, the brothers have come back, now we're back in Canaan and Reuben leads the remaining brothers and reports back to Jacob, their father. And they all open their sacks, they all find their money uh, that they had paid for the grain back in their sacks and this gave their father much cause for distress. In due time, of course, they would see Joseph as their saviour who was dealing with them in grace. But for now, they found grace perplexing. Don't we find that sometimes? We experience the grace of God, we just wonder at it. But we find it perplexing, especially in that stage of being unconverted. God deals with us. He brings us under the sound of the gospel. We start to read about Christ and what he's done. We start to read about grace. And for a moment, it's perplexing until suddenly we see the wonder of it that brings us to salvation. Jacob felt afraid. He felt bereaved. Joseph had been taken from him. Now they had Simeon. Now they wanted Benjamin. As far as he was concerned, Benjamin was more important than Simeon. Has Jacob learned anything through the years? Jacob seems to be blaming his sons for his losses. Verse 36, and Jacob, their father, said to them, you've bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. You see, Jacob had known God's presence during previous difficult experiences. But now, in this present crisis, he considers all these things are against me. We've been hearing in some of the messages recently of how God deals with us 
and we look back in our lives and we can see the great blessing and how God has brought us through situations so that when we face a problem or an issue now, we draw on that experience and know that our God is the same. For Jacob, little did he realise that all these things that were happening were working together for the good of all his family. Those words in Romans 8.28, we often quote them so liberally, don't we? But they have such wonderful meaning. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And the brother's guilt is compounded. Jacob didn't want to lose Benjamin. How long would the food last? How long would it be before they'd have to go back to Egypt? And they can't go back to Egypt if they don't take Benjamin. And the brothers caught up in their own guilt. They dare not confess their guilt before their father, and he was eating them up. But God was working his purposes out. As one of the commentators puts it, there is a retribution irony in this situation. The brothers were being punished by their own sins. And this is so often what we see in scripture. The psalmist reminds us of that chapter, Psalm 7. When we read, he made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealings shall come down on his crown. Or in Psalm 37, The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Think of Haman, hung on his own gallows. Even in history we see these things, people's sins coming back to halt them and find them out. The uh, biography, history of Richard Nixon, that... uh, Uh, president of the USA, recording all his discussions for history were the very words that condemned him. And how many pictures of Christmas parties are in existence to embarrass a prime minister at this present moment? Even for the believer, Peter's denial of Christ brought him more grief of heart than any external punishment would have done. As one commentator writes, conscience is a mighty tool. Men and women close down their consciences. They don't listen to them, and therefore that keeps them from acknowledging their sin before God. We should encourage our consciences to be a means by which we can grow and develop. Andrew Fuller, that uh, uh, friend of William Carey, once wrote this, The conscience is God's officer in man, set by him to be, as it were, your angel, keeper, monitor, remembrancer, king, prophet, examiner, judge. Yes, all those things are good. But if you ignore it, Fuller says, it will be an adversary. It will be an informer, accuser, witness, judge, jailer, tormentor, a worm, a rat, a dungeon to you. Yes, He says, these things will come upon you. And this is what was happening now to the brothers. They were caught up with guilt. Their consciences were stirring them. They dare not confess it to their father, but yet the day would come when it would come out. And the point is this, that our sin will find us out. We can never believe that all that we've done 
especially if you're unconverted here this morning, that you can hide your sin from God, that you can say that what I've done in terms of disobeying God's law, never worshipping him, never praising him, of lying, of cheating, and all the other things, God sees them clearly before him. And they are there for him to see. And it's only when we come to that point to recognize and acknowledge such things before God that we can start to see the way for forgiveness. The forgiveness that comes through the person and the work of Christ. And it's only through the blood of Christ that anyone can be redeemed from sin, for our sin to be removed. You know, some of the glorious uh, quotes we have in Scripture where we read that our, our sin is removed from us and we are told in one place that God puts it behind his back so it's never seen again. It is thrown into the deep. It is buried, never to surface again. And it's interesting, God says that our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. That's always interesting when you think of that. If you go north, you'll eventually come to the North Pole, and then you start coming south again, and then you go north again. But if you go east, you can always go east and keep going east and keep going east, as if there is a great chasm between the east and the west. And God says, your sin placed on Christ has been removed from you so that your conscience now is clear and the forgiveness that comes through Christ is yours for eternity. And for us as believers here this morning, we need to remind ourselves that even now, day by day, we have that great promise. We don't need to carry away around with us day after day our sin, the things we know we've done wrong. We come to the end of a day and we think, oh... That was a silly thing I said to so-and-so. Oh, I didn't, I meant to do that, but I forgot to do it. But we can bring them and lay them upon Christ even there, and our consciences can rest in peace. Listen to your conscience. Listen to your conscience. It's given to you by God for this very purpose. God put the conscience there so that you would go to Christ. You know, people who sin, people who go against God's word, and we see it so much in our society with all the changes in relationships and everything else, people in their hearts know such things are not right. And that is because God has put a conscience in each and every one of us. Ignore your conscience at your peril. Reject the grace of God at your own disaster. But praise be to God, There is that glorious and great promise that those that come to Christ, those who put their trust in him, those who recognize that Christ upon that cross dealt with their sin, have that conscience cleansed so that they are ready to be with Christ for all eternity. That's a great and glorious promise. These brothers had much to learn and the day would come when they would realize and understand what it was all about. But at the moment, they're not quite there. And they're covered with turmoil and a concern in their heart. They don't know which way to turn. But we will see in the days to come, as we come back to Genesis, God winning on another occasion, that God had a purpose for them and he would deal with them in grace and mercy. And may that be the case for each one of us, that God deals with us in grace and mercy for his name's sake. Amen.